The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But right now, we're ready to look into the Ten Commandments once again, so if you'd open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, our subject is the Eighth Commandment, and that is in the 15th verse, which says, Thou shalt not steal. When you were a child, most of you learned the maxim, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's a paraphrase of what Jesus said in Matthew seven twelve, and also in Luke six thirty one, Jesus said, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The end of that verse says, For this is the law and the prophets. And this is one of these familiarizing statements of complex themes that Jesus was amazingly capable of making. He could take life-altering principles and he could just put them in, in, in simple forms, putting them into sayings that are very easily remembered. In effect, he tells us that treating others the way that we want to be treated will help you to render perfect obedience to the second half of God's law. He says, in summary, also to love your neighbor as yourself. And so you will not harm yourself. You will take care of yourself. You will pamper self. And if you do that to your neighbor, you're not going to kill him. You won't commit adultery with his wife. You will not steal from him. You won't lie to him. You won't be jealous of him. That's the second half of the Decalogue. Ezekiel Hopkins noted this principle well when he said that the human psyche, even heathens, know of the one, these principles of the one true God, or the one, they don't know who the one true God is, and yet they make his principles a part of their morality. This is what he wrote. He said, it is a maxim which we all assent to, not by elaborate instructions or dent of arguments or any long train of consequences, but because it strongly masters our understanding by its native evidence and springs up in us an unpremeditated resolve of reason, both God and nature have set it up as a standard in our consciences, and usually there needs no other judge of our actions towards others than our own conscience, comparing them with what, in like cases, we would think just and fit to be done towards ourselves." Now, if I could summarize all of that for you, I would say that treating others the way that you want to be treated is the theology of our anatomy. It's our being. And not only did God say this in the Ten Commandments, and not only did Jesus say it in the New Testament as the grand summarizing principle of the law, but God has put this into your heart. This is innate knowledge. And any time that you go against that innate knowledge, the moral constitution that has been put into you by the creation, if you stubbornly resist that, that is selfish egotism and narcissism at its worst. And this tells us that we should never doubt the wisdom of the Bible. The scriptures are always right that the creature knows or the creator knows us. In John 2, it says, But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. 
and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. When we violate our conscience, we sin. We know that something is wrong, but we don't know how to fix it. And the root cause of all sin, of course, is the fall of Adam. The human race fell in him. We are all infected with Adam's disobedience. His desire was to please self. And nothing explains how there could coexist in a person at the same time, both good and evil. In man, there is a desire to please himself and a conscience that tells him that he ought to do it but also a conscience that tells us that we are to serve our fellow man. It's morally incomprehensible. Those two things can exist in man that is both good and evil. The Bible is the only thing that explains to us why you can feel good about pleasing yourself and at the same time feel guilty because you don't please others. Someone asked me why we have so much trouble with love, and the reason is that love for God and love for our fellow man underpins all of the commandments and so Satan knows if he attacks that if he attacks love of God and love of the fellow man then the structure of the whole building is going to fall so when Jesus said this is the law and the prophets he meant that the moral law is based upon these principles and it is precisely why heathen cultures who don't know God have adapted them as moral maxims none of the commandments is a stranger to our innate moral constitution and so we come to this Eighth Commandment and we find ourselves embroiled in another dilemma without ability to fix ourselves in this because theft and stealing is prevalent in our world today and it always has been. We find it everywhere. And so once more we see we fall short of the glory of God. Now let me remind you briefly of the discussion that we had from last week. We're in the midst of the development of four major points concerning the theology of thievery. And the first point that we discuss is the law of property. That the ownership of property is an inherent right, and that might not seem obvious to us at first, but it is evident by the possessive pronouns that we find very early in the English translation of the Scriptures. I didn't check to find out what is the first possessive pronoun in the Bible. Of course, I could have done that. I don't know what the first one is that relates to property ownership, but the first one that came to my mind was the scripture that talks about Abel, when it says that Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock. That is, he brought something that belonged to him. That was his ownership. Now, we do understand this principle very clearly, that theft is taking what someone owns. And we, we understand ownership, we understand that we have the right to what we own. What we own is ours to keep, to give away, to dispose of as we please, but what we own is not yours to take. And we understand that from the time that we're children. I watch my grandchildren fight over their territory. Their little world mimics the, the big world of societies everywhere. What's mine is mine, and you keep your hands off my stuff. At Christmas time, we gave, uh, not us, but my daughter, gave four of our grandchildren the same gift. Exactly the same thing. And those grandchildren, all four of them, knew exactly which one was theirs. And you dare not touch theirs, because when you do, there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth of epic proportions. 
I mean, this, this is really a territorial protection in biblical proportions. But no matter how small and insignificant the thing might be, we know that it belongs to us. We have rights to our property. No one owns it but us. And so therefore, if you take it, your mom says, give it back, it does not belong to you. Now, was that simple enough? We figured that out when we were children, didn't we? As, uh, as Ezekiel Hopkins said, you don't need elaborate instructions on this. Now, to make this point, it's very easy to see just by looking at our own constitution to see how we grew up, what we acted like. And even if you take a sleeping bag from a homeless man, that's his. And it's just as bad to him as if you had stealing everything that he has in a security scam. Take a rich man's money in a security scam is no worse to him than taking his sleeping bag. A property ownership is an inherent right. We, we violate our nature when we steal. Well, secondly, is the law of provision. The root cause of theft is a wicked heart, and from a wicked heart there flows out all of the sins that are common to man. Fundamentally, that is a lack of faith. It's disbelief that God is able to supply our needs. It's dissatisfaction with God's provision, or at least the amount that God gives. We doubt that God sufficiently considers our welfare. That's the lie that Eve believed. In the garden, Satan tempted her, and he said, God hasn't given you enough. God doesn't really care about you. God has not supplied all that you need. There is something that you really need, and if you have it, you'll be so much better than you are. And that was a lie. God had given Adam and Eve everything that they needed in sufficient quantities to enjoy happiness forever, but they didn't believe it. And so it turned out that the thing that they wanted most was the one that would do the most harm to them. So there's misery and failure always when we don't trust God. The first sin that appears on the scene in human history is the sin of theft, and that is when Eve took what did not belong to her. And then we saw that the first sin that Israel committed when they entered into the promised land was the sin of theft. And that's when Achan stole from the spoils of Jericho that which belonged to God. And then we also saw that the first sin that was committed in the church was the sin of theft. And that's when Ananias and Sapphira stole what they said had been dedicated to God. All of those instances are lack of faith. They said God can't provide, and so they violated the law of God's gracious provision. Well, that brings us to the, the next area of discussion that I want to uh, talk to you about today. At first glance, we thought that we were safe when we talked about the sin of murder. You know, well, none of us are, are guilty of murder. We thought that we were safe when we talked about the sin of adultery, that most of us would probably say, well, we've, we've never done that. We've never committed adultery. And yet we found out with murder and adultery that there are so many ways that those sins can be committed that we're actually guilty, that we're not as good as we think that we are. There are so many ways to commit sin that none of us have kept ourselves pure from these. And the same is true of this one that we're talking about now. If I ask you, are you honest? Most of you insist, yes, we are honest people. Well, let's take a look at that. Let's see if there's really proof that we are honest people. Now, thirdly, I'd like to talk to you about the law of prohibition. How many ways can the Eighth Commandment be broken? Well, the title of the message is The Theology of Thievery. 
And since this is a matter of theology, I want to discuss with you today the part that interests me the most. When we talk about theology, that's a very interesting thing to me. Theology is the study of God. It's about uh, the study of his being, of his attributes, of his knowability, and so on. But the term is usually broadened to also include everything that is contained within the Christian faith. There is anthropology, which is the study of man. And there is hamartiology, which is the study of sin. There is soteriology, which is the study of salvation. And some other ologies that I could give you. Really, when we talk about theology in the broadest sense, we're talking about everything that's contained in the Christian faith. And so I want to steer this part of the conversation to religion, to the way that religion steals from people. There's a lot of of folks that would be very interested in this because they're thoroughly convinced that religion does nothing but steal from people. Unfortunately, many times they're right. Religion can steal from people and, more importantly, steal from God. Next week, we're going to talk about how we steal from each other, but we're going to talk about theology, this particular theology today. How is it possible to steal from God? Is it possible to steal from God? Well, if so, then we ought to be concerned about that because I think all of us would say it must be worse to steal from God than it is to steal from man. There are degrees of theft. If you steal from me... You'll probably get a reprimand, maybe a slap on the wrist, maybe some probation. I don't know if I were to turn you in. If you go to the White House and you are visiting there and you pick up something off from one of the tables, you're probably going to spend some time in Leavenworth. That's serious thievery. But what about when we talk about stealing from God? Certainly you don't want to be found there. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 18. And I want to talk to you about the very serious business of the theft of souls. I know that sounds strange at first, but it is possible to steal the soul. Now, let me give you some background information as you're turning to that so we can set the scene. Revelation 18 is about the overthrow of a false religious system that will govern the world in the end times. And during the time of tribulation, the Antichrist and another man who is known as the false prophet will control the world in one dominant religion, one world religion, that will be a conglomeration of all the world's religions. And I make no secret that I believe that that religion is Roman Catholicism and that the Pope will be the head of it. And that's not a novel interpretation. Don't think, well, Pastor Smith had just made up something. That's the craziest thing I ever heard because that's the interpretation that was given for nearly 400 years after the Protestant Reformation. Almost all of them believe this, and many still do, including me, all this time later that this is talking about this one world religion that will be headed up by Roman Catholicism and this great whore that's talked about in the first part of chapter 18 is this one world church headed by Catholicism. Now the religious system in the chapter is known as Babylon. And this is not, I I don't think that this is the original city of Babylon that you find in the Old Testament times, but rather Babylon is a reference to Rome. And Babylon, there is a political Babylon, there is a religious Babylon, and both of them will be destroyed when Christ comes to reign upon the earth. 
Now, let me summarize just a few verses, and then we'll read the part that concerns our topic. In the first nine verses, the Bible speaks of a world in the last days in which all governments will be joined in an alliance with the Roman church. And as you may well know, the Roman church has always sought to be a state church, and for centuries what they did was to use the government to force people into their religious system. Now, in this text, in the last days, the Roman Catholic Church succeeds in becoming the one-world religion, and it enriches everyone that joins in that federation. Verse number 5 says that God will not forget these alliances and the sins that flow out of them. The Roman Church increases her political stature. It says that she sits as a queen, thinking that she's all-powerful and there is nothing that can touch her. No sorrow will ever come to her because she has the power to resist all opposition. But then when God brings judgment upon this apostate church, those that were confident in her and became wealthy by their alliances will mourn her loss when she falls. When the fires of God's destruction falls upon her, then they'll mourn because they have this alliance no longer and their riches and their schemes and all of their plans fall to pieces. This is in verse number 9, so we begin reading there. Verse number 9, And the kings of the earth, who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour thy judgment is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth her merchandise any more. Merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all fine wood and all manner vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beast and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. Notice the end of that 13th verse. The Roman church traffics in the souls of men. Like merchandise, like a bushel of wheat, like a horse, like a barrel of wine. The soul is nothing more to them than a commodity. Something to be sold in order to gain more money. Is that a novel interpretation of these scriptures? No, it's not. It's a Baptist one. Perhaps the greatest Baptist theologian of modern times wrote, the popes have some of them sold their own souls to the devil to get into the chair, and when in, have been the means of destroying of thousands of others. They assume a power over the souls of men, of binding and loosing the consciences of men, imposing new laws upon them and freeing them from the obligation to the laws of God and men, and to the ruin of their souls. And it has been said by their sycophants that if the Pope should send thousands of men to hell, no one should say to him, What doest thou? The Romish priests pretend to redeem souls out of purgatory for such a sum of money, and sell pardons and indulgences, say mass, and promise heaven itself for money. And this they get at the expense of men's souls by their false doctrine and superstitious worship and so make merchandise of them. I would say that the greatest theft that you could ever commit 
would be the theft of the soul. False religions will steal your soul. Whether that's Roman Catholicism or anyone else who teaches a lie, the souls of people hang in the balance. Now don't think for a minute that this is too harsh because the New Testament continually warns us against those that ignore the Bible and those that twist the Bible to their own advantage. And the Roman church is not the only one that does this. And to be fair to them, as if this kind of fairness really counts for anything, we can say they're, they're not the only religion in the world today that does this. It's not just Catholicism. Catholicism is not the fastest growing religion in the world. The fastest growing is the Word of Faith movement. The largest church in the United States is a Word of Faith church. This interesting comment was made about it. The largest church in America is led by a man whose platitudes are indistinguishable from fortune cookies. Now, the Word of Faith movement is headed by the likes of Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Myers, Kenneth Copeland, a host of others that nest themselves in places like the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which in itself is a misnomer because most of them are not even Trinitarian. All of them teach a doctrine. The Word of Faith movement teaches a doctrine called the Little God Doctrine, which says that you are as much God as God is and that you have power to do what you want to do if you have enough faith to do it. You can be as powerful as God. And T.D. T. Jakes, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, is a, one, of the, one of the big names in this group, is a oneness Pentecostal who denies the Trinity. And so how fast is this false Christianity growing? Well, at the president's inauguration this past January, Paula White, an adulterous woman preacher, was asked to give an invocation. And so for the first time in front of millions of people worldwide, the Word of Faith movement was given a platform. James Dobson said that Paula White won Donald Trump to the Lord. And... That gave evangelicals great hope for his Christianity. Jesus said, by their fruits ye shall know them. What does the Word of Faith movement do? Well, they're among the biggest thieves on the planet. They preach that all Christians should be wealthy. That in the atonement, Jesus died to dispense health, wealth, and prosperity, abundant prosperity to everyone. Never mind that the apostles of Jesus and Jesus himself warned about this and said that we are to forsake well for the gospel of Christ. Tim, uh, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So never mind that they teach people to be discontent, which is what they do. Never mind that they tell people to make money the pursuit of their life. And never mind that they know that it's all a lie when they tell people to send money to them and just sow their little seeds of faith and those seeds of faith will grow. And those preachers do make it grow. They make it grow into Bentleys and mansions and diamonds and jet airplanes for them. Now, I thought this was kind of amusing in a sad way that Kenneth Copeland, who preaches this name-it-and-claim-it theology, he, he says that whatever you want, you can claim it. If your faith is great enough, you can claim it and will be yours. And poor old Kenneth was a little perplexed when someone 
named and claimed his airplane and his house and his cars. Well, these people steal by misusing or ignoring God's Word. They fuel the flames of discontent when Paul said we are to be content with the things that God gives, whatever state that you're in. The more discontented people are, the more desperate they become. Like Eve, they will fall for the lie of Satan. They say that you need more than what God gives, so you claim it. You name it, you claim it, and it will be yours. So they steal money with lies, and consequently the soul is lost. There is no saving gospel in that. As that author said, a fortune cookie would do you just as good. Now if you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34... We can see how these charlatans and false religious leaders are foreshadowed by priests that were in Israel. Now, I could read to you many instances of this. We could go to the sons of Eli, and we would see where they stole sacrifices from the people. They're just a lot of examples. But in Ezekiel's time, Israel was filled with religious hucksters who stole and fed themselves while leaving people destitute of the Word of God. There was a famine of the Word in the land, much like we find a famine in our country today, a famine of the preaching of God's Word. These priests did not feed God's sheep with the Word of God. So in Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 1, And the Word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, and ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The diseased have ye not strengthened, neither have ye healed that which was sick, neither have ye bound up that which was broken, neither have ye brought again that which was driven away, neither have ye sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have ye ruled them. So the priest stole the word of God from the soul, and God was not pleased with that. In verse number 10, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand, and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. Now know this, that every preacher who stands in a pulpit and does not open the Word of God, and is not faithful to preach from the Word of God, is guilty of stealing the souls of men. Thomas Watson wrote, There is a stealing away of souls as heretics by robbing men of the truth. Rob them of their souls. And I doubt that Watson, who wrote that some 400 years ago, would have believed what he sees, would see today. How hard is it to find a church today that preaches from the Bible? How hard is it to go to a church on any given Sunday morning and to hear anybody do what we're doing today, open up the Word of God and read Scripture and explain it? How hard is it to find preachers that stand on the Word of God and say, Thus saith the Lord, and how hard is it to hear them speak uncompromisingly and with integrity? And so taking away the Word of God from people is the worst kind of thievery. It's bad when people steal your stuff, but it's eternally devastating when they steal your soul. You can replace all of your stuff. You cannot replace your soul. 
Now next is how the Christian steals from God. Religion steals from him. The the great religious organizations steal from God. The false Christianity that steals from God. But the individual Christian can be guilty of stealing from God. Secondly, I'd like to talk to you about theft from the storehouse. Now, we're still talking about religious thievery. Now, you're familiar with the storehouse, aren't you? Malachi 3, verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Do we still believe in storehouse giving? Oh, yes, we do. I I don't even think that I need to beat this drum too much because we all know this. The question is, do you obey the command? Now, I could take you to the full passage there in Malachi, Malachi 3, 8 through 10. We could read all of that, but I don't think that I need to do that because you already know that God said, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. And the use of that language is very interesting because he used terms like highway robbery, not just a simple theft. It's like a man who goes to the, to the bank with a gun and he deliberately sticks that gun in the face of the teller and he says, give me all of your money. In Malachi's time, it would have been like a highway henchman who robs people on mountainous roads and steals from them. There's not much excuse for that. It's, it's very plain. Now let me take you back to that egotist and the narcissist who satisfies himself, but he believes that he knows more than God. He doesn't trust God's provision. He doesn't believe that God can provide that table in the wilderness. And so the only way that he can get what he wants, to get everything that supplies what he thinks in this life he needs, the only way he can do that is to steal from God. Like Achan, who stole what didn't belong to God. He says, this is my right. I'll take that. I'll steal it for myself. I don't believe that God will give me my due in his time. And so the tithe thief is willing to take salvation from God as a free gift, which God does give. But then he takes God's money and puts it into his pocket. And did you know that that is God's money before the plate is passed? It's God's money in your pocket if you get out of here with it, if you get out of the storehouse. With God's money, if you do that, you might as well have reached into the plate when it went by to take it out. I learned about tithing when I was young, not only from the Word, but also by example. My dad was a very giving man. I remember particularly an instance where there was a family in our church, a family of four children, The father in this family was a drunkard. The mom was a Christian. She was a member of the church. But the dad drank up all the money. And because of that, their house was about to go into foreclosure. And they were just about ready to be put on the street with nothing. And so my dad bought their house. And he let them live there. Sometime later, that family got sideways with the church. They became angry about something. And they didn't care what my dad had done for them. They forgot it or they didn't care. But did that stop him from helping people? No, because that wasn't his motivation. It wasn't a motivation to get a return on his investment by buying somebody's house. No, if he gave up something for them, that was okay because he believed God would take care of him. And I learned from that 
never to shortchange God. I remember the first job that I had as just a child. I made 25 cents an hour. And I worked 40 hours and made $10. And I knew that part of that belonged to God, that God had his tithe in there, and there's an offering that belongs to God. I'd never forgotten that. I've seen some hard times when most people would think, well, you know, it takes a lot of trust in God to do that. But I don't say because I did that, 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 that I've done something great. I mean, I'm not going to brag because I didn't steal from God. Now, my tithe amounts to a lot more now. It's a bigger number. But I don't sit around and count the ways that I could use the money of that tithe check that I put into the offering plate every week. I don't sit around and think how much more I could have and how much easier my life would be if I could just take all that money that I, that I give to the Lord and spend it on myself. That money isn't mine. It's God's money. I might as well brag about not being a bank robber as to brag that I give my tithes. Now, I, I've got a lot more to say on this, but I'm not going to say it. My original notes, when I first started writing things down, what I was going to say in this sermon, had much more than this, but I'm going to tell you why I'm not saying anything more, or much more. Years ago, before I became pastor, I was a church consultant, and one of the things that we did in our consulting business was to design stewardship campaigns for churches. And we developed a series of sermons to go along with the stewardship campaign that a pastor could preach these sermons while they were going through this certain period of time, and that is supposed to stimulate people into giving. But in all the years since that we did that, that's been many years ago now, I've never used any of those sermons on giving. Now, I, I, I take, there is one exception. I use one sermon, and that was the one that I wrote. All the others were written by somebody else. But there was one thing that I learned about giving, that the last thing that works for giving is to try to guilt people into giving. I don't think that you're going to be moved by guilt. If you steal from God, you may not feel guilty, and that's why you don't see it the same as robbing from the bank. Now, the thing that motivates us in giving is love. Giving never comes from a heart that says, look what I have given up for God. Oh, giving comes from a heart that says, look what God has given for me. Look what God has done for me. God so loved the world. And until you, until you have the love of God in your heart, you're not going to give. Or at least you're not going to give in any other way than like a Pharisee who just likes for people to hear the coins rattle in the plate as you toss them in. Like the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2, we've lost our first love. We were saved by the love of God, but how... Quickly, we forget about that, how great that love is. And so we become complacent about our salvation as if God owed that to us. And that God owes us to keep us saved. God owes us nothing. God gives, freely gives, because He loves. He still loves His people. And it's hard to figure out why does God love His people when so many of them steal from Him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Is this one of them? If you love me, keep my commandments. Is the Eighth Commandment one of them? Don't steal. Don't steal from God. You don't need a preacher to explain that, do you? No elaborate instructions are needed for this. 
Well, let me conclude this part of the message by giving you one more way that we can steal from God. And that is theft of the Sabbath. That's one more way of religious thievery. Now, if you didn't catch this, it didn't catch you in, in the theft of the soul, maybe it doesn't, maybe not in the theft from the storehouse, but probably everybody in here is going to be hit by this one, and that is theft of the Sabbath. The easiest thing for me to do is just stop right here. It's uh, 12, almost 12.15. Stop right here. Many of you might be happy if I would do that. Just stop right here and say, just go back and review four sermons that we did on the, on the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the easy thing to do. I'm not always prone to do the easy thing. And you want me to earn my money today, I'm sure. So I'm going to give you just an abbreviated form of those four sermons. I doubt that there are many Christians who give a second thought to this, that when they take God's day to use it for themselves, that they have stolen from God. Now, if you look in your Bible there, in the 20th chapter of Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, do you see anything in verse number 10 that indicates that the Sabbath belongs to God? But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. That sounds to me like the Sabbath belongs to God. Is that just me? Am I misinterpreting this verse? Then what about what John said in Revelation 1? He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Oh, I see that clearly now. There's that possessive there. See the apostrophe S? The Lord's day? That's just good old English. Graham asked me a few weeks ago, if Adam knew any language but English. I don't know what his dad's been teaching him, but whether, whether you're talking about Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic or English, the possessive will show up. Uh, you know the problem. If the King James English was good enough for Paul, then it's good enough for me. Uh, perhaps you've heard about the preacher who secluded himself in his office for an entire week translating uh, a passage from John from the original English, and he concluded that believeth in John 3.16 can be translated as believes uh, in modern English. If you didn't get that, you need to stay up later. If the Lord's day belongs to God, some of you, maybe, not, maybe you didn't know that the Bible wasn't written in English. You did know that, didn't you? Okay, all right. If the Lord's day belongs to God, then what happens if you use the Lord's day for you. I don't need a week to figure that out. You've stolen from God. But we don't think that's very serious, do we? Churches are incredibly lax about teaching God's people what to do on the Lord's day. I heard a, a sermon a few years ago in which a pre preacher said that we need to, to stop insisting that people be in church on the Lord's day. And so he just gave up on it. And he began to preach that it, it's fine if people just show up sometime. So his church holds services on Friday nights, on Saturday nights, on Sundays. You pick the day that you choose depending on how long that you want your weekend to be. That if you need a long weekend, go on Friday night, then you'll have the rest for yourself to use as you please. I read an interesting article the other day. This was uh, uh, just right after the Super Bowl. What's that, a month or so ago? Uh, and it was about how the NFL had, had cracked down on copyright laws because there were so many churches that were showing the Super Bowl at church on Sunday night. And the interesting thing about it was, was just the headline. 
And this, the headline said, Ministers are not happy. I guess it means they might have to prepare a sermon on Sunday nights instead of watching the Super Bowl. Now let me get, just give you a brief note about using the Lord's Day because it's God's Day. How serious can you be about honoring God if you take His day and you substitute another day for it? How happy is God if you take prime time to use for you and then just leave the leftover time for God? It's like an Israelite saying, well, this lamb that I have has a broken leg. It's sick and it's going to die anyway. So why don't I just take it and sacrifice that to God? That's the same thing when you take the best of the time and use it on yourself instead of using it for God. I've done a considerable amount of reading uh, on the Sabbath day and how that was regarded by Christians throughout history. And I find that it's a modern-day phenomenon to believe that Sabbath day is Old Covenant, that that no longer applies to us today. Now, there are some who do believe that. Some very good preachers believe that. And even they won't let people off the hook to go to church on Sunday. But the difference between the ancient pulpit and the modern, it just simply comes down to this. How much are we willing to give to God? And if our dedication to God is sparse, then we're not going to have any problem re or requisitioning God's time to use on ourselves. But we also understand that there was never a time in the history of Christianity that people were really good about keeping a Sabbath. We find it mentioned in Hebrews chapter 10, because as far back as the first century, there was a problem of people going to church. And you get into the 15th and 16th, 17th centuries, when you had the Puritans, and these were holy people of God, and they were very strenuous about devotion to God, giving their devotion to God, but they still had a problem in their churches of regular attendance. And so is it senseless for us to keep preaching about this? Some think so. And so eventually that's led to no church on Sunday night. When it used to be, it was very common to have church on Sunday night. But when the church didn't have services on Sunday night, it was common to spend the rest of the day in service to God, meditation, prayer, visiting the sick, and so on. Now, if the Word of God doesn't give up on teaching the Sabbath, should we? I'm not going to be any happier than God is happy with low church attendance, slack attendance. As soon as we give up on any doctrine of the Word, you'll find out others are sure to follow. And thievery from the Word of God becomes a way of life. Now let me just leave you with this today. Just check it out in your own life. Are you stealing from God? And before we get to all the other ways of stealing that we will talk about, you need to start here. Do you have a problem stealing from God? Now let me bring you back to Jesus for just a minute. There, there's nothing that we preach, none of this, anything that I've said, none of this comes outside of the context of knowing Christ and serving Him better. Time and time again, failure confronts us, but did you know that nobody ever goes to heaven as a failure? You can't go to heaven as a failure. Did you know that? And the reason that you can't is because God does not look at the believer's sins. As far as our justification is concerned there aren't any failures. And that's because we have the perfect righteousness of Christ that's given to us. And Christ was always perfect in his obedience. John 15, 10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
He always kept the Father's commandment. And he said, if you keep. But there was no if with him. He always kept the Father's commandments. And he said, who's going to go to heaven? Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. 1 John 2, 17. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Well, you might ask then, what is the will of the Father? Am I capable of doing the will of of the Father. Well, this is the will of the Father. His will is for you to believe in Jesus Christ. It's to believe that Christ paid the penalty for all of your sins, doing for you what you could not do for yourself. And so you look down the list of the commandments and you find out, I can't keep this one, I can't keep that one, I can't keep the next one. I got the problem of stealing, I got the problem of adultery, I got the problem of not using the Sabbath. I've got all these problems in my life. But it's Jesus Christ who satisfied God for every one of those problems. Faith in Jesus Christ is the way that we go to heaven. That is the will of the Father, to believe in Him and trust Christ to save you from your sins. So heaven is by faith in Him. Trust Him and receive the merits of His perfect obedience to the Father. He's the only one that obeyed the Father perfectly. And thus, there is no one who will ever be in heaven without him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So every time you see yourself falling short of every one of these commandments, thank God that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's his perfect obedience that ensures that you will be in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come once again today, as we look at these commandments, we can't do anything but confess our faults, confess our unworthiness, say we haven't done that one, just like we didn't do the other ones. It's a problem with us every single day. Lord, help us to fall upon the mercy, the grace, the goodness of Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, but all of our hope and our confidence in him. And then, Lord, as proof that we are true believers in Christ, your word says that we will be obedient to your commands. Even though at times we stumble and fall, yet we won't live that way all of the time. We won't live in habitual sin, but we will be confessors. That we will come and we will repent of sin and say, Lord, help me to do better. I confess that you are Lord of my life and I need to serve you as your word says. Lord, I pray that you would speak to the hearts of Christians today and help us to prove our love of you by keeping these commandments that you've given in your word. If anyone here today is lost, finds themselves in position that I can't do this and um, I have no proof in my life that I truly am a Christian, I might say it, I might try to do some things that kind of look like a Christian, but really all in all, my life does not show Christ. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open up their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ and cause them to believe in you. Thank you, Lord, for all of this. We pray that you would be with us and bless us as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 
or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.